Our Heavenly Father, we do pray in your mercy you would help us to listen to your word this morning with attentiveness and know that it is given to us for our good. We pray that you would help me to teach it faithfully and truthfully. And gracious Father, we pray that we would let your word turn us away from ourselves and turn us to your Son and your great kindness and grace to us in our Lord Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, as Andy has indicated, we're about to listen to Ezekiel 16, a chapter one commentator on Ezekiel is described as long, lewd and with language that is in places frankly pornographic, evoking images of the most vulgar sexual depravity and the most horrendous graphic violence. Uh, The English translations and particularly the ESV which we'll hear tone that down a little but it is a chapter that's hard to listen to. It was even harder, even more confronting for Ezekiel's first hearers, those exiles of Jerusalem now living beside the Chebar Canal in Babylonia. God here, and it is the Lord speaking. You'll hear throughout the passage, thus says the Lord or declares the Lord, God here speaks with passion about Jerusalem and the people of Israel's relationship with him. In our first reading, a long one going through to verse 43, he describes that relationship by an allegory, a story of a marriage that has many correspondence with events in Israel's history. He will speak of Israel's origin, of their betrothal and marriage to him, and then of the people's disgraceful unfaithfulness and the consequences of that unfaithfulness. He speaks this way and it is powerful to get the exiles to rethink how they see themselves, to rethink where the issues are in their relationship with him, their God. You see, their view was that they were in exile, had been defeated by the Babylonians because the Lord had let them down. Uh, They were his special people, they said, a people better than a lot of others, And the Lord was meant to protect them, protect Jerusalem, his city and his land, whatever happened. And they thought to themselves, well, we'd maintained the temple and and done the sacrifices. So if the Lord was any God at all, he'd defend his city and bring us, his people, back to it soon. So they were disappointed in the Lord, waiting for him to come good. And they were stubborn. In their views, people with, as we heard in chapter 3, a hard forehead and stubborn heart. So the Lord gives this shocking history to help them rethink, to come to see their relationship and behaviour and its consequences as he sees it. And he'll follow that in verses 44 to 58 by a shocking comparison with neighbours the Israelites looked down on, considered themselves superior to. Before, in verses 59 to 63, giving the Israelites a real hope in him as they trade their stubborn pride for a life-giving shame. Ezekiel 16 is also an opportunity for us to think about how we see ourselves in our relationship to God, about whether we see ourselves as God sees us, 
whether we've bolstered our sense of our own goodness by false comparisons, whether we have found a real hope in the God who humbles himself to speak to us in ways that can get through to us, to give us, in a sense, this verbal defibrillator to shock our dead hearts into life. So please, listeners, Roz and Joanne, read verses 1 to 43 to us. Ezekiel chapter 16, starting at verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. Now I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty, and you played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore, the like has never been seen, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey, you set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord. And you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth, when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street you built your lofty place, and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbours, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. 
Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behaviour. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them and still were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea and even with this you were not satisfied. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things. The deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment, while no payment was given to you. Therefore you were different. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Because your lust was poured out, and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols, and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side, and I will uncover your nakedness to them, that they may see your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who committed adultery and shed blood are judged, and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands, and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you, and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. And they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore, and you shall also give payment no more. So will I satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will no more be angry, because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me with all these things. Therefore. Behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? Good. It will help you to uh, keep uh, your Bibles open. Uh, that's quite a retelling of their national history, isn't it? Their origin wasn't from the pious Abraham and Sarah, but, and this was true of Jerusalem, which was a Canaanite city for centuries before David contacted, conquered it, their origin was from callous pagans just like their neighbours. There was nothing special, says the Lord, about Israel. In fact, they were abandoned and helpless, only coming into life, existing because of the Lord's free decision, verses 6 and 7, that they live. And they flourish only because of the Lord's decision to protect and provide for them. In the story, he enters into a marriage covenant with them. And in history, the Lord committed himself to the people of Israel when he rescued them from, from slavery in Egypt and entered into a covenant with them at Sinai. And like marriage, that was meant to be an exclusive relationship, Israel, his bride. And in the story, the woman is beautified and ennobled by the provision and love of the Lord, her husband, exalted as a splendid queen, just as Israel was given the land and made secure in it through David and rose to prominence and power under Solomon. 
It was all the Lord's doing, all the Lord's provision. But what does Israel, this willful bride, do? She does the unthinkable and embarks on a life of unfaithfulness, not just a one-off extramarital romance. She promiscuously prostitutes herself persistently and repeatedly. At verses 15 to 22, look at her religious prostitution over the years, going after other gods, using what the Lord has given her, taking his good gifts to betray him. And that betrayal climaxes in child sacrifice, taking the Lord's children for every Israelite was his and killing them in the worship of other gods. This really happened, practised in the time of Ahaz and Manasseh, Israel behaving just like the pagan nations the Lord had driven out before them from the land of Canaan. So do you start to feel the offence of Israel's behaviour? Hear that phrase, my children. Do you feel the fury you would experience if somebody sacrificed your children? Then in verses 23 to 29, the Lord looks at their political promiscuity. They're turning over the years to other nations, Egypt, Assyria, Chaldea, that is Babylon, instead of turning to the Lord. To enter into an alliance in those days involved also relying on the gods of those nations who were seen as the source of that nation's strength. And so Israel repeatedly compromised for wealth, influence, worldly security. And then in verses 30 to 34, the Lord summarises both the stupidity and the offence of their repeated actions. Their idolatry neither enriched nor ennobled, but demeaned and impoverished. She paid her lovers. But those verses also intensify the offence. This bride would rather pay for other lovers than return to her husband. So greatly she detested him. You see, hers is a determination to shame the Lord, lavishing his gifts to her on her lovers. So what does this behaviour deserve? She's plainly despised, repudiated her marriage covenant, shamed her husband. She has shed innocent blood, the blood of babes. The Lord, the betrayed and despised husband, will give her what she deserves, will return her deeds upon her head. In the picture, it's giving her up to her lovers to enact this punishment. And for her capital crimes, adultery and bloodshed, she receives destruction and death. There is horror in that picture But those listening would not doubt it to be what she deserved for her behaviour, behaviour that the Lord is determined to stop. Oh, and they wouldn't think this wife had any call on her husband, any claim any longer on his protection. The Lord in this story is inviting the exiles to see Israel's (coughs) behaviour, their behaviour, their persistent unfaithfulness for what it is and to see the coming judgement of Jerusalem's destruction as deserved. The Lord's inviting them to see that the problem in the relationship is not him but them, to see that the way they have behaved means the covenant they claim to rely on has been set aside by them and that they no longer have any claim on the Lord's protection and provision. 
Now, Israel's story is especially bad because they had been the recipients of the Lord's special blessing, had been given that covenant, had been made his special people. But Israel, in its treatment of the Lord, is not unique. Israel's story is the story of humanity. We have been, each one of us, given life by God and he's the source of all the good we enjoy. He has shown us kindness in sustaining the regularity and fruitfulness of the world, giving us food and shelter, allowing human life to flourish and develop. But we turn his good gifts against him. We take our tongues, his good gift of language, and tell lies about him. We take his good gift of sex and use it to enslave ourselves and others to our lust. We take his good gift of intelligence and seek to construct worldviews that exclude our creator from his world. We claim ourselves to be the source of our life and wealth and give him no thanks. And at the same time, many say God should do this or that for us and that we humans have a right to be disappointed in God when things go wrong, shake our fists at him and say, if he was really God, he'd never let this or that drought or fire or earthquake or war happened to us this story asks you to see yourself differently and to think that the problem in the relationship is you your failure to acknowledge the living God to give him thanks and trust and sometimes this story is the story of those who say they're believers going through the motions doing the right things say going to church even reading their bibles but who have traded loyalty to God to pursue wealth or influence or being well thought of by their peers, reputation in the world or believers who come to trust in and pride themselves on their own goodness, their own keeping the rules, putting their trust in themselves to be right with God and then when they experience hardship, they complain and say the Lord has let them down and have forgotten that they're sinners. But Ezekiel's not done yet. So often we reinforce our own sense of our goodness, our deserving, by comparing ourselves to others. We're not as bad as them, and you can fill in the them. Jerusalem and its inhabitants did that. We're not as bad as Sodom, whom the Lord destroyed. We're not as bad as Samaria, that capital of northern Israel, whom the Lord destroyed, Ezekiel is about to turn that comparison on its head. Behold, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this proverb about you. Like mother, like daughter, you are the daughter of your mother, who loathes her husband and her children, and you are the sister of your sisters, who loathe their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite, and your father an Amorite, and your elder sister is Samaria who lived with her daughters to the north of you, and your younger sister who lived to the south of you is Sodom with her daughters. Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, with a very little time you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, declares the Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, access of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them. 
when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins. You have committed more abominations than they, and have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations that you have committed. Bear your disgrace, you also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters, because of your sins, in which you acted more abominably than they, they are more in the right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters. And I will restore your own fortunes in their midst, that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done, becoming a consolation to them. As for your sisters, Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former state, and Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state, and you and your daughters shall return to your former state. Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride, before your wickedness was uncovered? Now, you have become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria and all those around her, and for the daughters of the Philistines, those all around who despise you. You bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations, declares the Lord. Again, shocking for Israel's first hearers. Those notoriously wicked and judged peoples, Israel's sisters. The Lord is saying to them that you are not special. You belong to the same family, share the same character that they have. And the Lord says to the Israelites, you have made them look good. Verse 51, you have made your sisters appear righteous by being worse than them. Verse 47, not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. Now Ezekiel doesn't enlarge on Samaria's sin, that was still recent history, but he does pause over Sodom. Now, like us, the Israelites probably thought of the story in Genesis 19 of that attempted gang rape when they thought of Sodom. But that was just the culminating expression of Sodom's pride and lust. Listen again to Ezekiel's description of their sin. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. <laughs> Pride, excess of food and prosperous ease. That could be a description of the society in which we live, in which we share. We're prosperous, but there are many homeless, many indigenous people still living in poverty. We oppress asylum seekers who came by boat, and we routinely dismiss the concerns of our poorer neighbours in the region. And believers, well, we're prosperous too. Do we disturb our ease for those who are gospel poor, who are living life and dying without hearing in a way they can engage with the gospel truth that can enrich them and give them life? But the point of Ezekiel's comparison is that Jerusalem is worse, worse than Sodom, worse in her ingratitude, worse in her promiscuous idolatry, worse in her bloodshed. Yet the Lord here hints at hope. 
not just for Israel, but for her despised sisters, Sodom and Samaria. Verse 53, I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters, and I will restore your own fortunes in their midst. But notice, even this promise of hope humbles the Israelites. Hope for them will be found only in the context of hope for their despised neighbours, people they looked down on as fully deserving the judgment they'd received. So this hope, the Lord gives his hope for sinners, a promise of mercy, a restoration that will be based on grace, not deserving, not because Israel are special. And this will be a restoration that involves life from the dead. For Sodom and Samaria were well and truly gone, done with. That is, this is a hope found only in a gracious God who alone can give life to the dead. The Lord's saying there will either be good news for all sinners or good news for none. Now that Israel's wickedness is uncovered, the hope of Israel can be found only in what can save their sinful neighbours as well. How many of us bolster our sense of deserving, our sense that we are good people and therefore God owes us his favour by comparing ourselves to others? We are better than, oh, that person who left his wife for that younger woman, that person who cheats at work, that person who bullies at school, that person who is so ignorant. Oh, I know I am not perfect. In fact, that confession just shows what a good person I am. But I am better than them. Believers can be especially prone to this, can't we? I mean, we're serious people, serious about doing the right thing. We work at our families. We're scrupulous about keeping the law, paying our tax. We are sure we are more deserving. And we forget what our pride, our self-righteousness, our mean gossip and envy deserve. Until the Lord uncovers our sin, lets us see our lives, our hearts as he sees them. But there is hope. And Ezekiel returns to that hope in the final verses. Let's listen. For thus said the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath in breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you should know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded, and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, This hope that the Lord gives Israel is beyond the judgment, verse 59, where he says, I will deal with you as you have done, beyond the judgment that Israel deserves for despising the oath in breaking the covenant. So this is not a hope found in God abandoning his justice. But the covenant he upholds in bringing its punishments was also a covenant that promised restoration for repentance. Uh, We've heard a lot of scripture this morning, but let me read to you some of Leviticus 26, the chapter that speaks of the punishment Israel would face 
for abandoning the covenant. At the end of Leviticus 26, verse 40, the Lord says, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in working contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. The Lord in Ezekiel 16 says he will establish or cause to stand an everlasting covenant. This is not a new covenant. It is the promises that the Lord made to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Promises that their descendants would be the Lord's people. Promises that say that in Abraham and his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the Lord's determined that not even Israel's gross and disgraceful sin will frustrate his promise, but it will be fulfilled through showing grace to sinners. Those notoriously sinful nations, Samaria and Sodom, will be included, pictured now as Jerusalem's daughters, giving to Jerusalem, Israel, the central place in the Lord fulfilling this promise. They will be included, verse 61, not on account of the covenant with you, not as a reward reward for Israel's obedience to the Sinai covenant, but because God will keep his promise. And to keep his promise to Abraham to include Israel, there will be, must be, grace, mercy to sinners. In fact, that grace will mean Israel will finally be forced to confess that Their God is the Lord, the only God of heaven and earth, the only Saviour, the God who is all he has said he is. They will know that he is the Lord. And in that mercy and confession, their pride will be silenced and they will experience. Verse 61, shame, you will remember your ways and be ashamed. Now, shame is perceived as a negative emotion, but some shame is appropriate and life-giving. Just like the adulterous and promiscuous wife, Israel should experience shame for her idolatrous unfaithfulness. It was unjustified, ungrateful, impoverishing and destructive, dishonouring the one who had freely and generously loved them. But unlike other shame we experience, this shame the Lord speaks of does not drive them away from their God It is experienced in relationship with God because, verse 63, the Lord atones for sin. He will purify and cleanse them. And so they will live conscious of their undeserving, the good Lord gives them, yet enjoying all the good of being the Lord's people, living in his presence. This shame, This shame for sin against God breeds in the face of God's grace thankfulness, not hiding, trusting confession of the Lord's goodness and faithfulness, not disappointment and complaining, blaming God for what they experienced. Well, Ezekiel 16 is a big prophecy and its shocking language is meant to engage those exiles and us emotionally. We are meant to feel the wickedness of Israel's unfaithfulness, to feel the Lord's outrage, to feel the justice of his sentence. 
so that they and we would see themselves as their holy and just God sees them, so that they would stop thinking that their problem was the Lord's failure and see that it was their failure and start listening to him. To start listening to him as he said, hope and life for them, even in exile, experiencing already his judgment, hope and life for them would be found in turning back to him and trusting him. And it's good for us to start seeing ourselves as God sees us, sinners deserving death and that his sentence is just, but that life and hope is found in turning back to God. But as we think about Ezekiel 16, I want to ask you a question. What has it cost God to get them to rethink who they are and what they can expect of God? What has it cost God? Well, here we have language you and I would blush to use. The Lord didn't need to speak to Israel. He could have just left them. Oh, and he's already repeatedly told them of their sin. But here the Lord goes a step further. The almighty, holy, righteous God, whose eyes are too pure to look on evil, humbles himself, stoops low to use words that will penetrate their hard hearts. More. He speaks here of his humiliation, speaks of himself as a betrayed and misused husband, treated with contempt, putting up with contempt, for years now the passion in these words make you tremble but they are gracious as God sets aside his dignity to get hard-hearted sinners to see reality to see their behavior and its outcome in truth as he sees it to see it so they would turn and find life so see behind the passion to a God who passionately loves and wants to save his people and the world, even you, in faithfulness to his promises. And so let me ask you another question. What has it cost God to get us to rethink? What has it cost God to get us to rethink, to point us to hope, to secure the atonement that allows the shameful to live in his presence freely, (laughs) to make sure the offence of their disgrace, our disgrace is wiped away. What does it cost God to get us to see our misuse of his good gifts, our determination to have nothing to do with him, our hatred of him that will run after any other so-called God, give our love to created things and not him. What does it cost God to get us to see ourselves for who we are? Well, it's more than an impassioned speech. It's the word becoming flesh, the eternal son humbling himself to be born in a stable and then the love son, the Lord Jesus, who went about doing good, submitting himself to the criticism, the disbelief, the lies, the mocking, the hatred of a humanity who did not want their creator to have a place amongst them. In the treatment of Jesus, the human heart, your heart, my heart, is revealed we want the gifts but not the giver we want to possess the world as our own without acknowledging its maker 
We want to believe that we can put all our trust in ourselves and only acknowledge our own wills as the source of right and wrong, rule the world and our own lives without reference to God, actually sit in judgment on God. And it was the good people, the people who were confident of their own righteousness who killed Jesus, to get us to see the truth of our own hearts, our own hatred of our good creator. It took the Son of God humbling himself to engage in the great obscenity of the cross. And it is an obscenity. The creature killing the creator, hatred, crushing love, lies triumphing over truth, death swallowing life, darkness extinguishing the light. The cross is an obscenity. But the Son of God did not humble himself just so that as a race we would be confronted with our own hatred of God, our determination to rule our lives in his place. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never overcome that light. He lives. He humbles himself to fulfill the word of God, the promise of God, that in Abraham's offspring all the nations of the earth would be blessed, that even sinners can find life through faith in him. The Lord Jesus humbled himself to atone for sin, to cover over the offence of our proud rebellion. He humbled himself so that we could repent, turn back to God and find mercy, so that you and I can experience the life-giving shame of seeing our sin, our pride, our hatred of God for what it is in the light of God's mercy and love, could see it is disgraceful, ungrateful and destructive and know that that is not the final word of God on our lives. Seeing your sin as God sees it and seeing how God has graciously humbled himself so you can see your rebellion against your creator for what it is and for what it deserves how he humbled himself to give you hope and life in turning back to him, tells you that surely it's time to rethink. If you're not a believer, the God who confronts you with words you might think to be impolite like judgment and wrath is the God who speaks so that you can turn away from continuing your ungrateful rebellion against him that brings you death so that you can turn away from the lies that justify your rejection and find life in turning back to find forgiveness and life through trusting his son, our Lord Jesus, crucified for your sin, risen and reigning. You see, the problem you have in relating to God is with you, not him. So find the truth of God by finding out about Jesus, believing what he says in the gospel. More importantly, find the mercy of God by calling out to Jesus and trusting him to forgive you. Oh, you might be a disappointed believer this morning, somebody who thinks you've done your bit and has been let down by God, maybe even let down with the hardships of this COVID. Well, rethink, reconsider your confidence in your own righteousness. See your unbelief in his good promises to you. The pride that would find fault with the almighty God who, as a believer, you say gave his life, gave his son for you. See that unbelief as sin and turn from it. 
So you're grumbling for what it is. And remember who you are, a sinner living amongst sinners, saved by grace, not by your own goodness or deserving, and repent. And if you're a believer who knows and feels for yourself that life-giving shame, for your disobedience even now of God's good commands, for your lack of trust and thankfulness to the good God who made you and loves you, who feels that shame, can own it, grievous as that may be, because you know the gracious humility of the Son in atoning for you, wiping its offence away forever, then give thanks. Give thanks for being shamed so that you can find life. And never forget, never forget that you have life. You have a relationship with the living God by his grace and generosity, by faith in his Son, not your own works. And think this. If my God has been willing to use the language of the gutter to speak to those in the gutter, if my God has been willing to humble himself to get both the truth of my rebellion and his gracious forgiveness across to me, to bring it home to my hard heart, then shouldn't I be willing not to stand on my dignity but like the apostle to become all things to all people so that by all means they may be saved by hearing about Jesus. Shouldn't I be willing to live and speak in ways that others, all others, will hear and find life in our Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this shocking word we have heard. We do find it hard to see our ungratefulness, our waywardness, our giving our loyalty and trust to others and not to you. We find it hard to see it for what it is, a great and shameful unfaithfulness and betrayal of one who loves us. But we thank you that you expose us so that you can cover us with Christ's righteousness, that you show us we deserve death so that we can find life in trusting the one who has died for our sins and risen again. We pray, move us to be faithful people, to love the Lord Jesus, to hold fast to him, and to live even as we remember the shame of our sin with joyful and glad hearts, because we know that you are the gracious, good God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.